The International Olympic Committee has the honor of announcing that the Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. China has identified the cause of a mysterious pneumonia outbreak in Wuhan city. It's a new type of coronavirus. In the last few years, Japan has asked for the Olympic Games to be postponed for a year. Summer Olympics was the last major sporting event to hold off from cancelling or postponing competition because of the worldwide pandemic. After Canada and Australia announced that they would not participate this summer, the reaction was swift. The Games are postponed. Tokyo Olympic organizers say the postponed games will be scrapped if they cannot take place next year. Tokyo 2020 is now scheduled to run from 23rd of July to 8th of August next year after being delayed because of the coronavirus pandemic. Kia ora, I'm Emil Donovan, and in nine weeks, the 32nd Modern Olympiad will open in Tokyo. The 2020 Summer Olympics, the not changing the name despite the obvious typo, is undoubtedly the most unusual in modern history. No international fans, masks everywhere, no hugging, little to no mingling, tournament administrators have said no shouting or cheering, and as Japan battles another wave of COVID, arguments are still ongoing about whether the Games should even go ahead. But on the assumption that it does... What's that going to be like for the people who go, the reporters, the few and far between spectators, for the athletes themselves? Has the Olympics lost its zest this year? Or are these games, in a sense, the most pure we'll ever see? Ricky Swinnell is a freelance sports journalist who's heading to Tokyo to cover the games for Sky TV. What's your earliest Olympic memory? Oh, gosh, I'm going to age myself by, yeah. by saying this, aren't I? Um, OK, 1988, Seoul Olympics, um, and there's a couple. Uh, so back in the days you had videotapes, and my dad, well, both my parents were real sports fans, and dad had recorded this montage uh -huh. from the Seoul Olympics, which I think I watched until probably the tape ran out years later. But it was Flo Jo, Florence Griffith Joyner with the big long nails in uh -huh. the 100-metre sprint, Ben Johnson. Ben of Johnson, course, big he, Olympics, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh -huh. big Olympics for Ben Johnson. And, of course, Todd for two and two for Todd. He can do what he likes with these last two. It really doesn't matter. It's Todd for two and, and two for clear. Todd. That's <laughs> oh, great. Mark Todd and Charisma, the first time since 1932 that one horse and rider have won the Olympic gold medal for the three-day event in two successive Olympic Games, and it was a Kiwi who does it. Which is still, I mean, I see that now, and I'm, I'm so sad that I'll sometimes go and watch, like, things on YouTube, old <laughs> Olympic things on YouTube, and Todd for two and two for Todd. And then one actually before that, which is a very niche, and I obviously don't remember it at the time, but was Torval and Dean. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, and Bolero, mm -hmm. and, yeah, every so often I might just watch that. Just because I loved hearing you answer that question. Actually, I loved watching you <laughs> ask that question because it kind of like it 
the, the Olympics, it really does unlock a sort of childlike joy and nostalgia among people, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, which I guess as you get older and, and in the jobs that I've done, you, you do become a bit more cynical and a bit more realistic about um, what the, uh, what large parts of the Olympics are about. And there has been, you know, there has been corruption through the years and there has it's money and it has bankrupted cities and all of that. But then you just come back to those pure sporting moments um, that you think about. And like I say, Todd Fatuan, two for Todd, anyone of my age um, probably thinks about that and when Mark Todd made a comeback and and then he, he was in the studio one day and I was like this is the guy that ignited the Olympic love for me um, mm. and so it does, it's it's a real nostalgic thing, you can get a bit misty eyed and rose tinted about it at various times despite yeah as you say you get a little, bo- a little bit older and a bit more realistic about what things actually go on It was Daniel Loder for me. Yeah Daniel Loder was another biggie for me Loder in the centre of the pool now. We're going to have an Olympic gold medal here. Daniel Loder going to win this event. Loder wins. Loder wins gold for New Zealand and becomes the first New Zealand swimmer to win an individual gold medal at an Olympics. I actually remember it, we, we, I had asked my teacher, this is going to be on this day and I would like to go and watch it. And uh-huh. I was in geography class and I had been told the day before that, no, I would not be allowed to go and do it. So I had taken a Walkman <laughs> and somehow, I don't know, probably my mum and dad, they must have said it'll be on this radio station. And we were watching a video in geography class and I had like long, long hair. So I put on the Walkman and had it tucked in underneath <laughs> my hair and listened to Daniel Loder. Listen to the race, listen it's to the, the swimming commentary. It's beautiful. What an unpatriotic teacher as well. I know, but I mean, to be fair, a lot of my teachers probably got sick of me turning up to class always tired because I'd stayed up late watching sport or late be- coming to school late because, you know, I had had to sit and watch like the Football World Cup final or something like that. So are you... <laughs> what a sad are you, are you Are you one of those journalists, one of those sports journalists who's always wanted to be a sports journalist? Yes, yeah, I'm really lucky. Like, you know, from being sort of... At, at 16 I knew, but even before that I always knew, I was always sport, always something to do with writing or, or performance or, or something like that. I was, you know, to drama and English and all of that sort of stuff as a kid. And so, yeah, when I was about 15, 16, that was what I knew that I wanted to do and then sort of found the path to somehow be able to do it. So, I mean, getting the call, hey, we want you to go to the Olympics for the first time, that must be like... Yeah, it was cool. So my first one was London, 2012. It's the Ukraine and New Zealand. Lisa Carrington, Lisa Carrington, gold medal! I'd been to the Delhi Commonwealth Games... Uh, just before that for the now defunct radio sport, bless them. Um, and, yeah, so I'd been to the Alicom Games. And by that stage, by the time London came around, I was the sports editor there. So I kind of felt I had a pretty good chance of, of being the one, one of the ones to go. Um, but still that idea um, of going in London, a city that I had lived in, my dad's English, I've got family from North London, and so it's a city I loved. Um, and it was just, it was, oh gosh, it, I, I do get misty-eyed and rose-tinted <laughs> about it. Um, but yeah, to, to fulfil that, and I'm not a... I'm not a goal setter as such. I don't. I want to do this, this, this. But that was one thing as in a career, as a career goal that I always wanted to do was go to the Olympics. And so, yeah, that first time. And, and since, I'm, I'm still would never take that for granted. What were you excited about? I mean, it's always still the sport because it's like I always say, sport is this ultimate 
unscripted theatre. You go seeing these people who are at the absolute peak of their powers, and young people too. You know, most of these Olympians are in their 20s and they've got big lives to, to lead, yet they are doing extraordinary things at such a young age and dedicating themselves, sometimes to, to their detriment, mm. to, to be able to achieve those goals. So it is always still the sport um, and the, the remarkable things you see, but there's just this whole... It is a circus, um, and I always use it as a terrible analogy. Sport on steroids is the Olympics. <laughs> um, you know, it's every sporting event you see just expanded and, and blown up 20 times over. Um, so it, it, you get very wide-eyed at, at some of the things you do and see, and it's this like this whole world coming together in one place for this one event for two and a half, three weeks. It's a really strange phenomenon, really, if you think about it. It is. Yeah. It actually is. It is kind of weird, the concept of the Olympics. And I mean, because I, I find it interesting that you say that it is about the sport and about, you know, the visceral nature of pure sporting moments. Because um, I like, I get that. But it also kind of feels like the sport is really just an excuse for people to come together. Yeah, yeah, maybe. I guess it, it depends, uh, you know, for an athlete, they would yeah. not say that. It would be completely different for mm. them because, and and that sporting side of it, when I said, you know, these are people who work for years of their life to be at their absolute best for, in some cases, 10, 15, 20 seconds mm. um, to, you know, to achieve something incredible in that time. So, yeah, for an athlete, it's probably not the coming together, is it? But for, for I know, for uh, depending too on your different types of media. Some are, are going with a very um, cynical view and, and a, to, to look at what this does for, for countries and economies and, and different people. Others are there just going to purely report results. Others are going to report the emotion and the drama and the colour and that's the kind of side I really like about it. Mm. Um, and then you have, for, fa- oh, for families, I can't even imagine what it's like going to watch your child or your sister or, or whatever um, performing in that. And, and then for a city and the citizens of that city, it must be um, a really upending kind of thing too. 2012, your first Olympics. Yep. What are your most visceral memories of your first Olympics? Oh, like it's just the little things. It was a time in my life I was really settled and happy. Not that I'm not now, but um, my dad was over there at the time. He had gone over as well, so we saw family and friends. And um, I had a, worked with a great colleague, um, Brendan Nassau. It was just him and I. We were this, like this merry band. <laughs> um, but it's that camaraderie too that you have with the guys from the Herald or, or RNZ or, or you know all of these different places too. So it's a whole jumble of of memories really did mahi win a gold medal yep, in so and he was just exhausted he was he got to the to the um, pontoon afterwards and collapsed there was um the joe sullivan and nathan cohen the oh, the yeah, rowers yeah. as well their one um where you know nobody and i wasn't at that i was at the swimming watching something else and seeing it on tv um and so you have all of those little things i remember being on a bus watching Mo Farah, the English runner, and I was watching it on my phone. Right. You know, um, those kind of things. So I'm trying to think, what else? London 2012, the, um, Mark Todd and, and the equestrian team, oh, they yep. won a bronze medal. Usain, um, Usain, yeah, Usain, won Usain yep. Bolt was a big one. David Radisha, actually the Kenyan middle distance runner, and I was there in the stadium for that night, and that was pretty spectacular. Mm. There's various 
sporting moments that stick out. I desperately remember the hockey women's team yeah. and the penalty and losing to the penalty shootout and all of that. That still is like oh, soul destroying. I don't know how you remember that because it never yeah. happened. Yeah, oh, no, Ricky. that's right. It never it happened. It never happened. It never happened. <laughs> now the Netherlands with a chance with a goal here to win and move themselves forward. This is for the win. And she slots it home. The Netherlands are through to the gold medal game. Courtesy of the shootout. Well, a dramatic way to progress. A heartbreaking way to lose. And New Zealand worthy semi-finalists. Of course, the women's team did narrowly miss out on the gold medal match in 2012. We know all about the heartbreak of that day because we have a family connection. Yeah, I was lucky enough to do London 2012. Bianca Russell was the Black Sticks goalkeeper in that heartbreaking match. And she's also the younger sister of the detail producer, Alexia Russell. The thing is, like, well, most of the athletes who compete at the Olympics, she's just a normal person. She was a top-level hockey player, of course, but more used to playing a game in front of a couple of hundred people down at Mount Maunganui. So what's it like when all of a sudden... You've got 12,000 people at the stadium and being beamed out to a few million more on TV. It's massive. I'm not going to say it's everything, but for us it was huge. It's like nothing else we'd ever experienced. And I'd done World Cups by that stage, but for us we were there for hockey. Um, You take it to a whole other level when you're packing 12,000 people around your turf and the only other place you're going to see that is something like World Cup Argentina and I mean they're crazy for the sport but anywhere else you could be at quite a significant world event and you're not going to get the same hype and the same buzz that you would at an Olympic game it's quite a unique special experience. Was I mean you've been to other big cities before for hockey tournaments and things how did the London experience of an Olympics rate yeah, um, again, it's it's quite unique because the whole city gears up for the event. So right from the moment you get off the plane and are ushered into a completely different arrival hall, you had special people there welcoming you, handing you your um, athlete's pass, which you would never take off, and that's going to get you everywhere around the city. Um, you've got volunteers everywhere that are just excited about the event and mingling with the tourists that come and ushering you on and off the tube or telling you how to find Oxford Street in our case and, and safely back home to the village. So it's much more than just the village and the venues. It's the whole city comes alive and the atmosphere there you can see and, and people told us was very different than regular London experience. The whole village atmosphere is really quite unique as well because you've got all these athletes, everyone's in their uniform with their country colours on. Everywhere you look, you've got just, you know, the very, very high-achieving people. There are celebrations left, right and centre as medal winners come back to village and are welcomed back or are celebrated as they come through. You've got this huge food hall which becomes this mingling space so half the time you're excited about your event yeah you are but when you're switching off from that and getting some downtime you're excited about what's going on around you and it's like oh there goes a 
famous athlete, or there goes an incredible sprinter, there goes a you know big name basketball player, whatever it might be, um, which and the celebs that come as well. I mean, and we were in London, so we got various royals come through, and, and for us that was really novelty. You know, that was something we wouldn't experience elsewhere. In Tokyo this year, the whole team is going to have a very different experience. No spectators. None of the, all that colour and festivity that goes with an Olympics. What kind of difference do you think it will make? Yeah, look, it's it's hard to know. I mean, it's certainly going to be a very different experience for the um, guys and girls that get to go um, for Tokyo. Um, you know, by all accounts, we hear it's a pretty amazing city. How will that reflect when you know they're in such a, a sort of contained state because of COVID? I'm not quite sure. It's hard to imagine. I think one of the things to remember, though, is that every Olympics has its signature. Beijing was different to the concerns for Rio, was different to Athens, to you know, was different to London. Um, so I guess, yes, it's going to be hugely different again, but these are all professional sports people. You know, even if not they're not paid, you can refer to them as professional sports people because... They are 100%. Um, the way they conduct themselves, the way they prepare, will be preparing for that environment. Um, so if anything, do you know what? Maybe it will help them focus on their job and be an advantage um, for people who are new to the environment and haven't experienced all the hype. But by the same token, you know, for me, I'm happy I went to London, which got probably the biggest hype of all living that I can remember. So for me, you know, I'll take London experience any day and be grateful for it. What about the atmosphere more broadly? Like, I mean, no international fans. The stadiums will be a lot quieter. I think there's a rule that you're not allowed to cheer. Good luck enforcing yeah, yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but like, it's you just clap a, a certain way. <laughs> it's going to be a. It's going to be so strange. Yeah, yeah, it is, and I think particularly for New Zealanders. And Australians, because in the past year we've been in such a different state to the rest of the world and our sport has had fans. Yeah. Whereas in the States and the UK, they're still not playing with fans. And I, you know, I watch a lot of different sports from around the world and I was watching some Six Nations rugby. It was just maybe oh, when it was a month or six weeks back. And I thought, oh, I can't wait for there to be people in there again. Um, so strange. Yeah, it is. It's quiet and it's airy. And, and I know there will be, and the Japanese spectators are wonderful um, and and very polite and enthusiastic and um, and all of that. And so it's going to be a big reliance on, on those people who are allowed to go, the locals, um, to, to create some sort of atmosphere. Are you less excited about this Olympics than you have been about previous ones? I would say that if they decide to call them off, I wouldn't be as disappointed as I would would have been if it was a normal Olympics. Um, and that's not to say that I don't want to go and don't want to be there and don't want to cover it because I'd be 20 times worse sitting here at home watching them happening and not being there. Um, but I think the circumstances are just so difficult um, that it, it is, and there's so much will it, won't it still, that it's hard to be really enthusiastic. I know that I'm up for the challenge and, and want to go and all of that, but it, it's not quite like going to London um, or going to Rio I think the great shame of it too is not getting to experience Tokyo mm. and this and I've been there before and very lucky to have travelled with work and it is such a wonderful city and the Japanese people are so 
just exceptional and not being able to experience that um, is probably the most disappointing side of it for me. Um, I know that the New Zealand athletes are going to be able to perform as well as they can, that the achievements and and everything that they do um, will be exceptional. Um, But, yeah, there's those, those elements that are just gone. They're not there and it is not going to be the same. At the same time, my sports journalistic side, my sports history side goes, well, you're going to be part of something that is going to be really unique. But, of course, that is all contingent on the Olympics actually going ahead. And it's fair to question the wisdom of that call, just as public health expert Michael Baker did on TVNZ's breakfast programme earlier this year. It can be made safe for athletes to attend, particularly from high-income countries like New Zealand, but now is the wrong time. And this is a voice that's been raised across the globe at the moment about this huge concern about having an event like this in the middle of a pandemic. So are you, I guess, explicitly saying that we need to postpone the Tokyo Games, the Olympic Games? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look back historically the Games have been suspended or cancelled twice before, in the First World War and then on two occasions in the Second World War. And at the moment, uh, we are facing, um, obviously, we're at war with a global pandemic. So I think it is the right thing to do to postpone the Olympics for another year. A recent poll showed more than 80% of Japanese people oppose hosting the Olympics this year in a country currently battling its fourth wave of COVID infections, where more than 10,000 people have died from the illness. Do you think they will go ahead? (laughs) Yes, I do. Do you hope that they do? Yes, I do. If by the start of June they haven't been called off, then we're away. Then we're away. Yeah, that's too late. That's that's so far down a path now. Two weeks. Yeah, it's a lot of money and a lot of of face-saving and a whole lot. May, I mean, maybe in the end something good comes out of this too because there's been a kind of thought that the Olympics has it's crippled, it has crippled cities. Yeah. Athens has never recovered. It took um, Montreal 40 years to get out of out of the debt. Um, Rio, some 30, of the stadiums I mean, in Rio. Rio eh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so maybe it is like that things need to be dialled back, different facilities. Facilities need to be upgraded, not rebuilt, all of those kind of things. Um to, to make it more more viable and feasible and, and yeah, not cripple places. Still, for an athlete, an Olympics is an Olympics. We wouldn't turn it down, would you? No, of course you wouldn't. Of course you wouldn't. It's a dream. That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz and made possible by RNZ and NZ On Air. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can find us too. Today's episode was engineered by Blair Stagpole and produced by Alexia Russell. And thanks to Ricky Swinell and Bianca Russell. Goodbye.